Dear Lord, Lord, I do thank you for your faithfulness to our ministry. This last weekend, Father, was just another example of your faithfulness to work through the meager efforts of a small organization and yet use it, Father, to your glory in mighty ways. And the testimony of so many people who came and and spoke to the value of what they heard and what they saw is um, it's just evidence, Lord, that you can do so much with so little. And we we know that, Lord, we 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 understand that from Scripture. We we remember it from time to time. But so often, Father, we don't act with a confidence that understands you can do things. And uh, we wait to see the end before we begin so that we'll know that there will be a success in what we are endeavoring to do. And, Father, that's walking by sight, not by faith. We know that. And we, we ask you, Lord, that in the study of Daniel tonight, as we learn about what you did through the, the lives of these people long ago, that our, um, our view of you will grow and our understanding of your sovereignty will be increased and that these things will help inspire us, Father, to be better soldiers, better servants. And uh, to follow you with uh, greater courage. And Lord, I hope that that would be the outcome in the hearts of those who would hear your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after our break from teaching last week because of the conference, we get back into Daniel tonight. We're moving one step further down our chiasm. And I've opened every chapter from chapter 2 onward discussing this chiasm because it is our guide for these chapters. And if you weren't here for any of those past weeks, and you're wondering what I'm talking about, I'd encourage you to go back and look at the notes, particularly the notes have a a diagram of this chiasm I'm referring to. Last time we studied chapter 4, that was the chapter in which we reached the nadir of the chiasm, the low point of the chiasm. So chapters 4 and 5 are at the lowest point in the development of the theme, and you're about to come back up out of it. And as a result, 4 and 5 are the point, as you may remember. Chiasms take you to the point of a section of scripture. And so we are at the point of the story that's embedded in this structure. And both chapters are focused on that point, on that same general idea. Each, though, is looking at this point from an opposite perspective. And last time we met, last chapter, centered on King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, how he was appointed ruler of the world and how he was the conqueror of God's people, the destroyer of the temple, the wall of the city and all the rest. And nevertheless, This is a man who was also subjected to the authority of God, just like every other man. He was ruling only because God placed him in that position. The Lord revealed that to the king back in chapter 2 through the dream that Daniel interpreted, that there would be a time when the Lord would remove power from Babylon and give it to Babylon's successor. So he knew it was coming. And sure enough, one day, as the king began to boast that it was his power and his wisdom that was responsible for his success, in that moment, the Lord stripped him of his power and of his comfort and of his dignity and even his humanity. And for a total of seven years, he lived like a beast out in the field. That was chapter four. That led to the king's repentance. And some might even argue it led to his salvation. That was last time, remember? Well, the message of that chapter was directed at both the Jew and the Gentile. Simply put, the chapter was about God is large and in charge, as people like to say. And that takeaway from chapter 4 is mirrored in the message of chapter 5. That is, that God does all that he does for his glory. In Israel, the message was, respect the fact that I have taken you and put you under the, the control, under the power of this Gentile nation and made you captives in Babylon. And for the Gentile who was in Babylon, the message was, yes, you've been appointed over God's people for a time, but it's only for a time and it's intended to serve my purposes. It's not because of your smarts or power or wisdom or whatever. 
So chapter four storyline finds its complement in chapter five. That is, you're going to find another king. And this guy is equally in need of humbling by the Lord. The antagonist changes from Nebuchadnezzar to another Babylonian king, Belshazzar. And from the first Babylonian king in the age of the Gentiles to the last Babylonian king within that age. And also the story changes from one of repentance leading to redemption to one of judgment leading to destruction. So now you see how the two sides of the chiasm work together. Whereas chapter 4 supported the king of Babylon over Israel, chapter 5 reduces the kingdom to rubble. In both cases, the Lord demonstrates his sovereign choice and power. And as with chapters 2 and 4, you're going to start with a king getting a cryptic message from God, which the prophet Daniel has to interpret. All right, with that long-winded introduction, let's just dive in. Chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Let's get background. There's actually going to be quite a bit of history tonight. A lot of things in this chapter raise questions that those who are not inclined to believe scripture often cite as reason that it can't be trusted. Because there's some names, some details that would seem to not comport with history but in fact they do once you understand them properly and the first of these is Belshazzar Belshazzar is not Nebuchadnezzar's son nor is he Nebuchadnezzar's successor in fact he's not even a king at all though the text uses the title simply to reflect that he was in charge at the time Belshazzar is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had a son his name was evil Merodach Evil Merodach was his name. Coincidentally, that was the same name we gave our poodle. His son, Evil, ruled for two years. Following his death, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Nergliser, reigned for another four years before he died. Finally, a second son-in-law, Nebuchadnezzar, reigned until the end of the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar had a habit, though, of staying away from the capital city of Babylon for prolonged periods of time. In fact, during the final ten years that Babylon was the chief nation on earth, Nebuchadnezzar never set foot in the city once. We're not exactly sure what he was doing. He may have been attending to other areas of the kingdom. He may have preferred the weather in another part of the kingdom, whatever the case may be. In his absence, he appointed his son, Belshazzar. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson as a regent or a ruler of Babylon in the king's absence. So technically, Belshazzar was second in command, but in the king's absence, and remember, there's no radios, there's no cell phones, there's no way they can communicate in real time. So if you're going to leave your kingdom to someone in your absence while you're off doing whatever you're doing, that person has to have autonomy to make decisions. They can't wait to get word to you and get word back. So they act effectively as a king in your absence. And that's who Belshazzar is. Second in command, the son to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar who died. So though Belshazzar is not actually king, he is acting as king. That's one of the first disputes people 
have with the account here in Daniel 5. They say, well, Daniel calls him a king, but he was never a king of Babylon. Therefore, this account can't be trusted. Well, the name king or the word king is being used here to reflect his acting as such. It's not intended to be necessarily a way of endorsing him as the official monarch. We're actually going to see down in the page evidence of what we're talking about. Look at verse 29 for just a moment. You'll notice in verse 29 of this chapter, Belshazzar is moved to reward Daniel for his interpretation, and he offers Daniel a position of authority, and he offers him third ruler. You see that? That's the highest he could give to somebody in his current situation. He's second ruler. The highest he could offer anyone, the highest position he could grant is third ruler. It's a confirmation of what we're talking about, that Belshazzar was not the king. He was the second in charge. In chapter 5, we're in the year 539 B.C., You might remember what year did Nebuchadnezzar defeat Israel the first time and start the age of the Gentiles back in chapter 2, 605. So it's been about 67 years since Daniel entered Babylon in captivity, now that we're in chapter 5. That means he's around 80 years old. Remember, he was roughly 15 years old when he was taken captive. So he's about 18 years old at this point. He served Nebuchadnezzar until Nebuchadnezzar died. Then he would have served evil. And then he would have served Neraglisser, and then he would have served Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's serving Belshazzar in Nebuchadnezzar's absence. All the while, the people of Israel have remained in captivity. By 539 BC, the Medes and the Persians had united. These are two different empires who were both common enemies of Babylon. And the two nations had come together, fighting together as if they were one army. And they had been winning victories against the Babylonian Empire, chipping away at its territory and its power in the years leading up to 539. And in 539, they were descending upon the capital city of Babylon. But even with the city under attack, the population of the city, including the king, as you can see already, had virtually no care whatsoever about the state of their nation and about the threat looming outside the walls of the city. And that's because the city of Babylon had not been captured by anyone in over a thousand years. Now, that's more than three times as long as our country has been in power. And you, you can tell we're already taking for granted the fact that we have defense of our borders and few things could threaten us, right? But think about how you would feel if it had been a thousand years without anyone threatening you. That was their state of mind. And to understand why that state of mind was still in place a thousand years later, you have to get a picture in your mind of what Babylon was like. The city of Babylon was a fortress unlike anything that has ever existed in the ancient world before or since. The Greek historian Herodotus described in his writings the city and and the defenses of the city. He reported that the city covered about 14 square miles. That's a fairly large space even by our standards. And surrounding that huge space was a wall that is so massive, it's really hard to even imagine it when you hear the description. The wall itself was 87 feet thick, thick enough that four chariots with horses could ride side by side on the top of the wall. And that's just the width. Even more amazing was the wall was 350 feet high. That's half the height of the Tower of Americas in downtown San Antonio. Imagine a wall halfway up that thing running 14 square miles, 87 feet thick. In the wall were a hundred gates And above them, hundreds more watchtowers that rose another 100 feet above the 350 feet height of the wall. And inside the city, there were provisions that were equally impressive. The city was said to have had stored up 20 years worth of food and wine to survive an extended siege. 
Furthermore, the city straddled the Euphrates River so that it had a continuous source of fresh water on the river. Where the walls of the city reached the Euphrates, they would turn and parallel the banks of the river on either side. And the walls along the riverbanks had gates that opened, allowing the residents to gain access to the water or to move between the two halves of the city. In times of attack, these gates would be closed and the walls defended from above like around the rest of the city. And the river was so deep that armies attacking by water stood absolutely no chance against the impossibly high walls that were topped with soldiers sending down barrages of arrows. So Babylon's impenetrability gave its residents a false sense of security. So even as the powerful Medes and Persians were converging on the city in 539 B.C., you see here in this chapter, Belshazzar is oblivious to the dangers. In verse 1, we're told he's presiding over a great feast. And it says he's entertaining a thousand nobles from his kingdom. Now, the reported size of the dinner party may lead you to think this is just an exaggeration, but there are good reasons to believe this is a literal number, that it's accurate. Ancient kings in Persia and other records that are available have been reported to dine with as many as 15,000 guests on a daily basis. You wonder whose dish night it was after one of those parties. Secondly, many nobles in attendance here would make sense because it's probably the case they're seeking refuge in the city of Babylon, escaping the advancing Medes and Persians elsewhere from the kingdom. So they've all come to this place as a sanctuary, expecting they can ride out 20 years of siege, which by that time, all the guys who were sieging you are dead, and they've gone back home, and they've had kids. They're waiting for the whole thing to blow over. So here they are in the city, and rather than war planning or devising an escape, the leaders of the kingdom are just eating, drinking, and being merry. The king's willingness to disregard the war outside the walls tells you how sure he was of Babylon's strength. He's assuming there's just no way they're going to be able to get over these walls. He's trusting in his power. He's trusting in the historical strength of the city to withstand these attacks. And therefore, his behavior in this moment is a a piece of evidence to reflect his cavalier attitude. His self-assurance would remind you of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, wouldn't it? Nebuchadnezzar was the man who looked over these very same walls when he said, look what my might and my power have built. He foolishly assumed he had gained the right to that power by means of his own might, his own skill, his own wisdom. Now he has a grandson assuming that he can never lose what has been gained for all the same reasons. And yet, as scripture will tell you here shortly, both men knew beforehand that it was the God of Israel who had given Babylon this power and that he had already told them it would only be this way for a while. Now, at the point in the night celebration where we ended the passage, the king, and I assume under the influence of wine, makes a foolish decision by calling for the gold vessels from the Jewish temple to be brought out. These are the gold, silver vessels, the basins, the cups, the things that were prescribed in the law or created outside the law in any case to be used for the service of the priests in the temple. The Lord permitted Nebuchadnezzar to have these things. I mean, we know that. When he captured the city, he looted the temple. God made that all happen. You notice in verse 2 it says Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father, but we already said he wasn't. He was his grandfather. But the Chaldeans don't have a word for grandfather. There's no such word in their language. So anyone who's an ancestor to a man is the father of that man. Whether it's a grandfather, great-grandfather, doesn't matter. These are the fathers. Belshazzar's brilliant idea is let's use all of these precious implements of Jewish worship to serve the court women and the rest of us. And so he directs that his wives and concubines will drink from these vessels It appears from the way he's speaking about them that they are trophies of war. They might have been sitting in a little trophy cabinet in the hallway of the palace somewhere. And they don't seem to have been used or touched in all the years since Nebuchadnezzar took them. 
That makes some sense because in the way they thought of those implements, they were proof of a defeat of a god. You took the things out of the other temple to prove that your god was more powerful. And you left them on display in that way because they were testimony to the fact that your god was more powerful. On this occasion, though, he decides he wants to use them as silverware and party cuffs. You might wonder, well, why would he want to do this? Well, it makes sense in light of his situation, really, because he's encouraging optimism on the part of the nobles and those in attendance on the occasion of this great army bearing down on the city. Because in effect, what he's telling everyone is, remember, we've defeated great gods before. We defeated a big city before. We'll win this battle too. Let's drink from the cups of our previously defeated enemies just to give ourselves courage under the circumstances. As they drink, finally it says they honor the gods of human hands rather than the God of Israel. And this is blasphemy. This is idolatry of the highest order. They're taking things intended by God to honor him, and they're using them, they're dedicating them to false gods. And so they test the Lord's patience, and he steps in on this evening to make clear his displeasure with the king. And in typical form, he's going to speak to the king in a way that necessitates Daniel's involvement. Now, before we look at what he does, and this is a very well-known chapter, we even have a phrase in our language today, a common euphemism that we speak about today that comes out of this chapter. Anybody know what it is? The writing on the wall, right? The writing's on the wall. That comes out of this chapter. Well, before we look at the way God communicated to Belshazzar, I just want to note in passing the importance God obviously places on speaking through the Jewish people. I mean, God brought his word to the world through Israel, through prophets. In fact, everything we have from God comes through the Jewish nation. The covenants, his word, the Messiah himself. Though the Lord may speak to Gentiles from time to time, even when he does so, he does it in the context of working within Israel. And in this case, you see it. Daniel is God's prophet, so the Lord could have just spoken to Belshazzar, but instead, he does it in a way that requires that Belshazzar bring Daniel into the loop so that Daniel ultimately explains it, putting Israel in the way, then again, of his revelation. And his way of speaking in this case is is highly unique. Rather than a dream, he presents the king with something that is unlike anything else in Scripture. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged... And began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to everyone in the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's men, wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. So we'll spend a couple of minutes here just thinking about what must have happened here. The Lord gets the king's attention. He does it very dramatically. It's kind of entertaining to imagine what a floating hand with fingers might have looked like, right? Was the hand cut off? Was it bloody? Uh, did it just sort of fade out at the end? I mean, what what did it look like? <laughs> Whatever its appearance, it's attention-grabbing and it's frightening. God writes with a finger on a plaster wall. And there's no writing implement mentioned, so I'm assuming the fingers carved the message into the plaster. That might be why we hear that it is plaster. It's a softer substance, easier to carve into. It reminds us of what? The Ten Commandments, right? It reminds us of God's finger writing the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. That would seem to be appropriate because it would seem to connect the king's sin 
to the law, and it is the law that specified the holy purpose of those vessels. And now the king is engaged in idolatry against the law in use of those very same vessels. So it might be a suggestion of God's finger again. In archaeological digs of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, they have found in that palace a large throne room shaped as a rectangle, two long walls, two narrow walls, that was large enough as a room to accommodate hundreds of people. And at the midpoint along one of those longer walls, there's an alcove setback that is clearly there for some kind of special purpose, probably a throne as it's shaped in a way that would accommodate a larger throne. And the wall that directly is behind that alcove is white plaster. So it would make sense or it would seem as though that's the place in which this actually happened. No writing was visible on the wall. My assumption is even if it had been there and that is the right location, they probably covered that up at some point. In any event, Daniel said the hand wrote opposite the lampstand. So what that probably means is that you have the throne seated in front of a plaster alcove, white plaster indentation in the wall. And then you might have a lampstand directly to the side of the chair as a light for that area for the king. Opposite then would mean to the opposite side of the chair. Instead of the right side, the left side, in other words. And if that's true, then it would have meant that the hand was floating immediately behind and to the side of the king's throne, perhaps where he was sitting at the time. Perhaps he's dining at a table and he's not in his chair. He doesn't need to be necessarily. But it's in that vicinity. It's close to his seat of power. That's the most important aspect of that symbol. Right at the seat of power, God is writing a message to the king. And in verse 6, we see the effect of the vision. He's basically scared out of his wits. It's understandable that he would feel this way, right? I mean, it's one thing to see something like this on TV, you know, special effects. And I think in our culture, increasingly, we're so numbed to anything of this sort that the enemy has been very effective now in making supernatural seem normal. Not in our everyday experience, but in the sense that we experience it through television and movies, so that I think if anything ever did really appear in front of us, I'm not sure exactly how we would take it, but I assume we'd feel like he did, perhaps, or we might think someone was playing a trick on us. He didn't have any of that delusion. He knew it was something real right away, and he's terribly fearful. That sudden fear contrasts quite dramatically with the moment of merriment that he was having just a brief time earlier. His contentment in the face of the Medes and the Persians was a result of a false confidence, a false faith in himself, and simultaneously a forgetting of God. Just like we mentioned about Nebuchadnezzar, his pride produced spiritual amnesia. He forgot who was truly in charge. He forgot who gave him his power. He forgot the power that that God has so that he would even dare to drink out of the implements that that God gave him when he let Israel be conquered. Belshazzar represents, you could say, all unsaved mankind upon whom God's wrath will ultimately fall. The world is always a heartbeat away from a great and terrible judgment, one they do not acknowledge. They live Solomon's advice to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, yet without a single thought, it would seem, for what actually will happen the moment after they die. They think things are fine, like Belshazzar, until they discover quite suddenly that they're not what they thought they were. Of course, that's a dramatic outcome for Belshazzar. It's an eternal outcome for those in the world who don't know him yet. The writing in the wall, we don't see it mentioned here, it comes later in the text, but the writing in the wall is in Aramaic, but no one seems to know what it means. Still, it's mysterious, 
And the way it was written in such a dramatic way, it makes the king feel compelled to discover its meaning. So like his grandfather before him, he calls all the magicians to interpret the message. He says, I'm going to make you rich and I'm going to give you third seat of power if you tell me what it means. And for the third time in Daniel's book, the Babylonian magicians strike out. Three strikes. It seems the Lord is intent on humiliating the Babylonian wise men at every opportunity, doesn't it? The Lord is going to speak, but only through his people, and he only reveals mysteries to those whom he chooses. And unless he's willing to reveal it to you, you're not going to understand it. As the king begins to realize he's got no way to understand this mystery within his own, he gets more worried. And at this point, you would expect that he would say, all right, let's bring Daniel in. It's always Daniel, but at least we have him. Go, Go get him now. But it it appears he doesn't think to even call Daniel at all. Apparently he's lost touch with his grandfather's experiences with Daniel. Given his age, you remember we said this has been quite some time now since the experience Daniel had with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel may have been retired in the sense that he no longer had any positions of authority in the kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar originally granted him. But Belshazzar's ignorance of the Lord's prophet is, is really evidence that Babylon's leaders have given no regard for God's past revelations, that what he gave has been lost just as quickly as it came. So like his grandfather before him, it requires that someone else come to Belshazzar and say, oh, I think I know someone who might be able to help you here. And they make the introduction. In this case, it's a woman who brings the king's attention to Daniel's unique gift. Verse 10. The king entered the, or the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the uh, magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. So just as Belshazzar is not the real king, for reasons we've just explained, this woman is unlikely to be the true queen. And for a couple of reasons. First, the wife of the king would not be expected to speak up in a manner like this in the court, and especially during a tense situation like this. Women didn't play a role in court matters, and the king usually had many wives and concubines, so it would have been out of order for any one of them to speak up and to say what they thought about what was going on in the, in the court. Secondly, this woman seems to be keenly aware of Daniel's abilities when Belshazzar isn't. And that would mean it's unlikely that she is actually the contemporary of Belshazzar. It would be unlikely that the king's wife would have such memories, but the king himself would not. Therefore, I would argue, and others do as well, that this woman is unlikely to be Belshazzar's wife, more likely his mother. And as such, that would make her Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Growing up as a girl in the court, she would have been there with her father who was king. She would have had a much greater likelihood of having heard all the stories of Daniel's exploits from the years he served his father in the court. And as the king's mother, now Belshazzar's mother, she would have had much greater license to speak up and give advice to the king. The queen mother is often the one who can say and do things no one else can do. And that's true even in our world today. So the queen mother is made aware of the commotion in the banquet hall and arrives to see her son vexed over the situation. So she tells the king, don't be afraid. I think I know how we can help you here. I know someone who can solve the problem. 
I wonder if she just recognized the similarities between this situation and some of the stories she remembers hearing about her father's situations. I mean, writing on the wall is different than a dream, but same thing. Nobody knows the answer. Where do we go? Oh, I think I remember this storyline. And so she says, let's go get Daniel. You know, she describes Daniel in ways that are similar to the way her father also spoke about Daniel in his day. He had the spirit of the holy gods and, and so on. And in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, it says he demonstrated insight, wisdom, and illumination. That would seem to suggest that his role as an interpreter of mysteries ended with Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have any other record in the scriptures of it in any case, but we can probably safely assume it never happened, that there was nothing after Nebuchadnezzar with the other two kings. And so Daniel's just faded in the memories of the nation. And he was once chief of the magicians. Again, it sounds like he's not in that position anymore. And he's old and he's not doing much anymore, it would seem. While her description is glowing and it's accurate for the most part, you can also tell by what she says that she has no regard for the God of Israel. She speaks about him having the gods in him. She doesn't speak as if she knows Yahweh is the one true God, right? Nameless gods, spirits, and all the rest. That reflects a pagan view. So the point is, despite the fact that we saw her father in chapter 4 seeming to have this conversion, and perhaps he did, even if we grant the possibility that he became a true follower of Yahweh, he did not share that faith with his family, or so it would seem. Perhaps that's the best argument someone could make for casting doubt on Nebuchadnezzar's supposed conversion. Moving on now, verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of God is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you were able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. The king knows Daniel as an exile, he says, from Judah, someone with great spiritual power. And he acknowledges that he is now dependent on that ability since he just said, my counselors couldn't do this. Effectively, he's saying to Daniel, you're my only hope. And so the king makes an appeal to an exile. I want you to stop and consider this situation because it's rather extraordinary when you look at it. The most powerful position on earth has just looked at a man and said, you're one of my slaves, right? And has looked to this slave for mercy and asked this slave to produce something for him that he cannot do on his own. It is a completely upside down situation. Even more remarkable is his offer to the slave. I'll make you number three in the kingdom should you be willing to give me the interpretation. You know, he could have just ordered him to do it. He could have just threatened his life if he didn't do it. He's the king. What can't he not do? Instead, he chooses to bargain with the slave, which is a very interesting situation. Finally, Daniel's response is even more remarkable in light of the fact that the king has shown an interest in bargaining. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. It's apparent that Daniel is in a completely different place now at this point in his life as compared to where he was when he made his appearance before Nebuchadnezzar 67 years ago. Wouldn't you agree? In that earlier encounter, he's barely 17 years old. He had been in captivity only a couple years. He was coming to the end of his training. He may have understood that the Lord had ordained Israel's captivity, but he really had no idea how long it was going to last, not back then. 
He must have been in awe of Babylon's power, the king's power. Imagine some kid coming down out of Israel into that setting. And now you're working directly for the king. And even as he's taking on this role, he must have had some hope that if he pleased the king, he could win some favor for his people. Who knows what was racing through that young kid's head? He was gaining power. He was gaining status. He was gaining freedom. He had been given great comforts. He had this new position over all of Babylon's conjurers and so on. Now he's lived most of his life in Babylon as an exile. And he's watched generations of Jewish slaves die in captivity and new generations born into captivity, having never known freedom or Israel's homeland or any of that. I wonder if Daniel's attitude is starting to have changed a little bit. He sounds more cynical here, even a little bit discouraged to the way it sounds to me. He's no longer a man of responsibility. We can see that he's largely been forgotten. That's evident. He knows the Lord's in control of these things. I'm not saying he's lost faith in that sense, but I assume his cynicism is actually directed toward the Lord in that respect. He knows it's not Babylon who's keeping him there. He knows it's the Lord who's keeping them there. Wouldn't that start to become a hard thing to bear up under after decades and decades and decades? You, you might start to wonder, how much longer do you expect us to have to, to tolerate your judgment? When, when do you relent? So now he's finally brought before the king. I would suggest this might be the first king he's been brought before since Nebuchadnezzar, as as has been suggested already in the text. He's dragged in for the first time in a long time. It's late in his life. Perhaps his hopes for release are starting to fade. And he speaks with a noticeably different tone. If you go back, as I said, compare his actions here to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he spoke boldly, but with discretion to the king's captain, seeking an explanation for why the king was killing everybody. Remember that? Then he prayed with his three friends. Oh, I hope when I go before the king, God will give me what I need so that I do the right thing. And when he answered the king, he credited the Lord in heaven for having given him the answer. And and he made requests of the king as a consequence of having pleased the king. He knew it was an opportunity. He took full advantage of it. It's just a very different mindset. Now, in this encounter, I imagine an old, gray-bearded, stooped-over man shuffling into the king's presence. Probably not with a whole lot of enthusiasm. I'm imagining Yoda, but that's not quite the right picture. And the king says, do this for me and I'll give you all this power and great glory. And he absolutely refuses it. And he does it in a manner that's bordering on insolent. He makes no attempt to negotiate. He just gets down to business, almost half-heartedly, as it sounds to me. And here's why. Part of the reason, I think, is because Daniel knows this message has come from God. He knows he's still serving the Lord in this matter. But if he's a little less enthusiastic, it's understandable, given not only the history, but also what he knows the inscription means. What he knows is about to happen. We can't forget, Daniel has just entered the dining hall, so he must have noticed, as he's walking in, all of the sacred temple vessels being used as serving dishes in the room. That alone must have enraged and discouraged Daniel. And as we look at his interpretation, including a description of the words written on the wall, we begin to understand a little bit about why he doesn't have great hope. Verse 18. O King, the Most High God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of a beast of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. 
He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hands are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and then the, or then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. This is the translation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, from 18, verses 18 to 21, that's not a part of the interpretation. What Daniel is doing is giving a little family history lesson here to a man that should have known all this already. He explains to him about his grandfather's circumstances, that he was a powerful king, but that he was made so by the God of Israel. And in the course of time, he acted so arrogantly that the Lord had to treat him in such a way to humble him. And the whole point of this story, of course, is to make a comparison between what Nebuchadnezzar did and what God did to him and how he responded compared to Belshazzar. But not because Belshazzar has gone through exactly the same set of circumstances. Interestingly, the point that Daniel makes to him is that God, in ordaining Nebuchadnezzar to live like an animal for seven years to humble him, and to bring him to a point of repentance, that lesson should have been learned not only by Nebuchadnezzar, but by anyone who would follow Nebuchadnezzar. That, in other words, it does not require that every man get exactly the same warning and the same opportunity. If it's been done once and written down, that's sufficient. And, of course, when did Daniel write the chapter that describes Nebuchadnezzar's life? Well, remember who wrote it? Who was the author, in a sense? Nebuchadnezzar. It's a first-hand account. Daniel's wrote it, but Nebuchadnezzar dictated it. That means it had to have been written before Nebuchadnezzar died. That means the account is available. The, the story has been written already by the time of Belshazzar's lifetime. So, as easily as power came to Nebuchadnezzar, God demonstrated how easily it could leave if he did not respect the power of the giver of all of that authority, that is, of God himself. Notice there are two important words in this passage. The first of those words appears in the middle of verse 21. It's the word until. Daniel says, The Lord subjected Nebuchadnezzar to living as an animal until he recognized God Most High was the true ruler. In a word, the Lord was seeking repentance, and that's what he obtained. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge him, right? The second important word occurs at the beginning of verse 22, and that's the word yet. Yet, Belshazzar did not learn the lesson of his family's history. He seems to have forgotten it, which is why it seems like Daniel has to remind him of the whole thing. It should have been even easier for Belshazzar than it was for his grandfather because he had his grandfather's experience to learn from. He didn't have to go out and live like a beast. He could just say, oh, I don't want to live like a beast. I know how that goes. I'm just going to do the right thing up front. And at the end of verse 21, the Lord proclaims through Daniel that he alone determines who will rule over mankind. He says, God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whomever he wishes. You might even underline that in a season of politics. 
Belshazzar didn't have his throne because something inside himself gave him the potential or the ability to gain it. It was merely a result of God's choice. This was true in Daniel's day and it's still true today. Every person placed in authority over mankind anywhere on the planet is there by God's choice. And there are no good rulers since every human being is sinful. Some may seem better to us than others. And in some cases that leads Christians to question whether God truly does put everyone in charge because some seem so abhorrent to us that they don't seem to comport with the character of God. But friends, in that kind of a scales method of judgment, you're forgetting just how bad everyone is. The one you think is the great ruler that you love is equally sinful as the one that you think is terrible. Whether their sin acted out to the same degree or not is different, but that doesn't fundamentally change how good they are from God's point of view. We don't have to like what they say or do, and we might even work within the law to replace them from time to time, which is perfectly fine. But we need to accept that each one is in place as a manifestation of God's will. They rule for as long as God desires, and they are there because he puts them there. Because Belshazzar has not learned the lesson of his grandfather, he then took the action this evening to dishonor the implements of the temple. So in verse 23, Daniel points out that the king has determined to give honor to false gods that cannot receive that honor, while simultaneously denying honor to the one true God who does deserve it. Those pagan idols of, of silver, gold, and the like. They were incapable of bringing Babylon glory, while the vessels of the temple were intended to be filled by God's glory, and they have been, instead become cups of wrath for Babylon. Notice at the end of the verse that Daniel reminds the king that his very life is in the hands of the Creator God, the one he is so callously offended. I want you to imagine a scenario that's a picture of what's going on here in this scene. I want you to imagine a condemned man standing on the gallows with a noose around his neck. And in his final moments, he begins mocking his executioner whose hand rests on the trapdoor release. That's what you're seeing here with Belshazzar. He's mocking the God who allows the king to keep breathing, Daniel says. Spiritual amnesia. Notice to this point, Daniel has yet to address the handwriting interpretation at all. This is all just background on why the writing even came in the first place. What that would suggest to us is that Daniel has recognized the meaning of the message immediately. In fact, he gives details of what's been transpiring in the room when he wasn't even there, it seems, that there was drinking and they brought these implements out and the like. So it seems as though Daniel has given Belshazzar some of this insight already before he shows up. And it may be also that Daniel's been waiting for an opportunity to say what he thinks of this king for a long time. It finally happened. He finally got his, his chance. In any case, now with the background, he's ready to give the meaning of the writing. First, he reads the king the inscription. The words were mene, mene, tekel, aparsin. And those words appear to be Aramaic words, and there is yet still some mystery here. Let's see if we can unravel it a little bit. First, the Aramaic meaning of those words are all various weights or units of measure of weight. Mene means the same thing as the Hebrew word mina, the parable of the minas. Tekel comes from the same root word as the Hebrew word shekel. And uparsin means half a shekel. So you have mina, mina, shekel, half shekel. So mina is worth 50 shekels. Shekel is obviously a lot less than a mina. And then you have a half shekel at the end. So the phrase would be similar to us saying something like dollar, dollar, nickel, penny. In the sense of the relative value of these weights. Now you can understand why the magicians didn't even know where to begin. 
in offering an interpretation to the king of what that could possibly mean. But for the very same reason, it's hard for us to see how Daniel came to the answer that he gave the king. Back in chapter 2, we didn't understand the dream if we just saw it by itself. But once we saw the explanation from Daniel, all the pieces of the statue fit. We could see how they related to the interpretation. But in this case, it's really hard to understand what Daniel is saying or how he gets it out of those words. Neither Aramaic or ancient Hebrew uses vowels. Their words have no vowels in them. Not written. Not when they're written. They're spoken, obviously, with a vowel sound, but they're not written. Modern Hebrew has vowels, but ancient Hebrew didn't. So they're only writing out the consonants. So you gain a knowledge of the meaning of words by the context. Uh, you know, there's certain words that make sense together that wouldn't make sense if you changed the vowels. So in practice, you get to understand what the sounds of the vowels should be for a given set of consonants by what consonants are next to each other. You want to play this game yourself, take a, a sentence of English and take out all the vowels, push all the consonants together, and I'll bet you'll still be able to read it. Because there's patterns that you recognize and there's only certain meanings that could make sense next to each other and you work it out. And with practice, you can read it just fine. Aramaic didn't either. And it seems as though then that Daniel took the word mena, which remember, those vowel sounds are not in the writing. It's just the M and the N sound that are there in the writing. And he used different vowels to turn the word into mena, which we would write as M-E-N-A-H, which is Aramaic for the word numbered. So he took mena and pronounced it as mena, and now in Aramaic it has a meaning. It means numbered, which is what he says it means. Your days are numbered. We don't know what led him to do this, obviously, but we just take it at face value. We take his interpretation to be divinely inspired at face value. Likewise, he changed tekel to tekal and uparsin to peras. Keep in mind, if you look at the consonant sounds and you take out all the vowel sounds, you can create those other words by just changing the vowels. Tekal, the new word from tekel, means weighed in Aramaic. And peras from uparsin means divided in Aramaic. So when you put all three words together, the phrase changes from minus minus shekel, half shekel, to numbered, numbered, weighed, divided, as he spoke it out in Aramaic. And then Daniel goes on to explain that this message is one of judgment, both for the king and for the nation of Babylon. Daniel says the nation's days were numbered. You were told that your kingdom only had a limit for how long it was going to last. You're acting as if you don't have a limit. You're forgetting God said you would. You're not here forever. And furthermore, the nation and its leaders have been judged and found deficient in God's sight. So... As a result, he says, the kingdom is going to be given to the Medes and Persians. Instead, Belshazzar has offended the God of Israel in the worst possible way so that he and his nation will now pay a price for that. Daniel interprets the repetition of the first word, menamena, which he then turns into menamena. He interprets that to mean that Babylon's end is coming immediately. That's a very consistent interpretation. Uh, Throughout Scripture, when God repeats things, he uses that repetition to mean emphasis or certainty or swiftness. He does the same thing to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh gets the dream about the coming famine, the fact that the dream was repeated twice, Joseph interprets as a sign that this is coming with certainty, that you can depend on this dream. It will, in fact, happen. Here you see the same thing again. In this case, it means the nation's end is coming like God said. It's numbered and it's coming this very night. We remember that the Lord promised in Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2 that the nation of Babylon would only rule for a time and then another nation would rise to displace Babylon, then a third one after that, and so on. The time for that displacement has now come 
And the Lord has just told the king through Daniel that there is just cause for this changing of the guard. That is to say, Belshazzar's arrogance has given God just cause to destroy the nation that he put in authority and bring the next nation in that chain into power. That's a very interesting example of God's sovereignty intersecting with men's will. God's words to the king would indicate that it's his behavior that's responsible for the changing of the guard and for the timing of his nation's fall and the new nation's arrival. And yet we know from chapter 2 that God has said the Medes and the Persians were going to be the nation that came in eventually and defeated the Babylonians. So which is it? Is it his arrogance in use of these vessels that is the cause for the nation's fall? Or is it just the preordained plan of God that he established from beginning and said it was coming? Well, if you attempt to reconcile those two ideas, those two seemingly contradictory ideas, the best you can really say is God preordained the end, yes, but Belshazzar's sin was the tool that God used to bring about that end. The Lord found the nation of Babylon deficient. It could never have served God's purpose in ruling the earth in righteousness. It was always deficient in comparison to his own kingdom, right? That's true for all the age of the Gentile nations. Uh, All of these nations from Babylon to Medo-Persia to the Greek Empire to the Roman Empire all the way to the Antichrist Empire, all of these are going to be found deficient in the end. They can only be replaced by the kingdom of God if we're to find a kingdom that is not deficient. Now, you might think after you hear this as the king, you're going to be a little bothered by it. You might be a little upset at the messenger, or you might at least start being a little worried about what comes next. But it doesn't seem that way here. He doesn't seem to have much concern. He proceeds to reward Daniel as promised, even though Daniel told him he didn't want it. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now has authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Daniel received the honor and the gifts the king promised, even though he tried to refuse them. I mean, if the king insists, that's an offer you can't refuse. So Daniel is now the third ruler in the kingdom for all of a couple hours. Why would you think the king was so insistent on granting these honors to Daniel, especially in light of the interpretation? Well, either he's oblivious, he's drunk, he's an idiot, or all three, or he's just very calculating. Perhaps the king thought Daniel possessed the power to change the future of this prophecy. And if so, then it might seem as though the king was binding Daniel's future to the future of the kingdom. Because before the night was over, the Persians had entered the city and conquered the nation, killing the king, as you see right now. And whenever you find this happening, whenever a conquering nation arrives, it's always a bad thing to be part of the old government. You're the ones they kill first. So by elevating Daniel to third in charge, the king might have thought that Daniel would be motivated by self-interest, self-preservation, to do something to ensure the ongoing preservation of the kingdom. Of course, you can't outmaneuver God, and and Daniel didn't possess that kind of power, but the king may not have known that. He may have thought, well, if I go down with the ship, I'm going to handcuff you to the rails, and we'll see how this goes. So the Lord somehow protected Daniel and the Jewish people, even as this huge horde of of an army rolled into town and defeated the Babylonians. And the story of how the Medes and Persians worked together to conquer the unconquerable city is a story worthy of Homer's Iliad. It's fascinating. Multiple ancient historians, including Herodotus, Xenophon, Berossus, and even the Babylonian Chronicles, the records of the Babylonian government, they all describe the same events of what happened that evening. On the night of October 12th, 539 B.C., The Persian army completed work north of Babylon on a dam 
across the Euphrates River on upstream from the city. They diverted the flow of the water in the river to a nearby lake, which was a huge undertaking all of its own. That greatly reduced the amount of water flowing down into the city of Babylon. Within a few hours, the river level at Babylon was barely thigh high at that point. And it was low enough now for Persian soldiers to wade up the riverbed that ran directly through the heart of the city. Now, this is at night. And so the watchmen on the wall towers above the city would have been scanning the night sky, the horizon, for large troop ships coming up the Euphrates or maybe ground forces marching across the land toward the walls. They never noticed the smaller columns of men quietly wading through the dry riverbed below under the cover of darkness. And therefore, sensing no threat from the water, the Babylonians left the city walls and the gates facing the river undefended. And the Persian troops simply scaled the walls from the riverbeds, opened the gates to the city, and then entered the city without as much as a fight. Herodotus says that the city was so vast that even after the outer parts of the city had been taken by the Persians, the residents living in the center of the city still had no idea that the city had fallen. He says that the Babylonians in the center of the city were engaged in festival, dancing, and revelry until the invaders overtook them. You might imagine the king's palace was located somewhere in the center of the city, and therefore, as he celebrated that night, the troops were already inside the walls. And as Daniel pronounced the king's downfall in the palace throne room, the troops were probably close to the door of the palace as well. As it says, the king was executed that very night. It might have been, I'd like to think it was right as Daniel's words finished speaking, for that would have been a comparable experience to what Nebuchadnezzar had. Remember, even as the words were leaving his mouth, he immediately took on the the heart of a beast, as Daniel said. So this king was executed, the nation fell swiftly, and a new king took power, a man named Darius the Mede. We'll cover him next week. The last verse that we'll cover is part of the next chapter. We now enter another phase of Daniel's time in captivity under the Medes and Persians. Darius forms his own controversy in history, which we'll look at when we study that section next time, next week in Daniel 6. And then, as I said, in Daniel 7 and 8, we actually go back in time to events that happened prior to the ones we just studied. By the way, as a closing thought, you see how the author, Daniel, has constructed the order of his writing to create the chiasm. The chiasm matters more than getting this chronologically correct so that the message is clearer in the text. And that's often the way chiasms are used. All right, let's go to prayer as we finish up tonight. Heavenly Father, we know your sovereign will is at work in all our lives. We pray, Father, that you'd never let us get a heart that's so prideful we forget you and we forget that you have this control. And that means, Father, when we're suffering and when we're in trial and tribulation, we know you've put us there. And give us a heart to ask the question, why? And how do we learn from it? Rather than to uh, worry only of our circumstances and look for our own solutions. And, Father, when we, uh, when we suffer loss or death or tragedy in our life, Father, we know that those things were also appointed for good purpose. Help us to understand. And when we have triumph... When we have success, when we have great things fall in our laps, Father, don't let us overlook praising you, nor should we get too comfortable with them. For everything in this world is passing, Father, and we wait our true glory in the days of the kingdom to come. Meanwhile, Father, keep us uh, in your word so that we may grow and please you in the days that remain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.